0: Bienvenue, mes amis! Bienvenue à Aspiring Snobs, un podcast de, de film classic. <laughs> We would like to welcome our wonderful French listeners and congratulate them on the incredible World Cup victory. No, the final, no, no, the jus final. The Cup du Monde. No, I don't care. You know what? Dissolve NATO, break up the European Union. I don't care. <laughs> if, I don't, if I never see another World Cup-related piece of ephemeral in my life, I will die a happy man. Pourquoi, <laughs> mon So I live in a quote-unquote cool neighborhood. I don't know if you guys knew this. Indeed you do. Yes. I, uh but we won't geolocate you cuz mm-hmm. god forbid there's any psychos out there who want to know exactly where you live but <laughs> or you know they'll dox me. Um, so I went to I wanted to go to my local coffee shop this morning. Uh, FYI, it's a cool neighborhood. So there's one coffee shop per resident in the entire neighborhood. So I'm going to my allotted so, coffee shop. So you have plenty of options, but you want to go to your coffee Ex- shop. well. You have to you have to be assigned to your one coffee shop, Greg. When there's one coffee shop per person, <laughs> you have to be assigned. And this is like a socialist state, so you know. <laughs> exactly. So, welcome to socialist America. You're assigned coffee shop. Exactly. Shops there are bread lines and. <laughs> Gas rationing, terrible. Well, that's awful. what anyway. happened. I was going to my coffee shop, my preferred coffee shop. And sadly, that's when they decided, hey, let's close down one of the main thoroughfares, put up giant-ass TV screens so that everyone can stand in the fucking uh, sidewalk to watch the final of the World Cup. And then I try, um, after I'm squeezing whoa, shoulder to shoulder whoa, John, on past all these assholes, looking at me like <laughs> I'm crazy, you're on the sidewalk watching a game, a soccer game, I'm not the crazy one, you're the crazy one. <laughs> so, slow down, slow down, I, I'm... Not, to, not to, John. I would never doubt the veracity. If you're, you always speak truth. Thank you. I Thank know this, John. But I, I'm, I'm already. This, this story sounds a little incredulous. For one, this is assuming that hey, they closed down an entire street just for the World Cup final between let's let's remind folks France and Croatia. Okay, they didn't. They um, two they, countries that I, I don't think are widely represented in the city of San Diego. You'd be surprised, Greg. You'd be surprised. And that's what bothers <laughs> me so much. People get so amped up about a sport that should mean nothing to them. They're crazy. They're they're stupid. <laughs> well, opponents that should mean nothing. Exactly, but B. This is also under the assumption the the final started eight a.m. Pacific Coast time. Yeah, and I I know nobody in in San Diego is up at that hour. Excuse on me, a no, Greg, you have no idea. All right, I was awoken by the cheers of these people. Okay, <laughs> these mind bogglingly crazy people who care this much. <laughs> That they got out with their lawn chairs. And okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. They, didn't cl- they only closed down a block. But it was like at the main corner of the neighborhood. And again, everyone's packed shoulder to shoulder for this stupid game. And then I finally get to my coffee shop and there's a line up the door. Because the coffee shop is literally right there. I have to go two blocks down to another coffee shop that I don't really like that much, okay? And yes, I could have gone to Starbucks, but I am trying to support what our it? local entrepreneurs. What, what was it about that other Starbucks franchise that you didn't like? I was trying to support my local entrepreneurs, okay? All right? And I just simply do not have the time to go to Starbucks, call the cops on every black person sitting there, and then walking away, okay? I'm a busy man. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to ask what the demographic makeup of this crowd was for the World Cup, but... Oh, it's all young hipsters, bro, okay? They're all crunchy. Really? And yeah, okay. Okay. Well, again, because I live in a cool neighborhood. I live in one of those gentrified oh, neighborhoods. So, yeah, yeah soc- soccer is the sport du jour. Exactly. That's another French term for you. <laughs> yes, Greg, Greg took French, everybody. I don't know if you knew this. Mm-hmm. He, it. he thinks it makes him so, interesting. Uh, John, I'm sorry I'm sorry to hear about your... But come on, it's, it's share some joy with our French compatriots as they uh, relish in this World Cup victory. Come on. Maybe maybe commiserate with our poor uh, Croatian fans. Uh, I know we have a lot of Croatian listeners out there. No. <laughs> and John just a wonderful part. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I have another premise I want to introduce. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's talk about this week's movie. Oh yeah, which is uh, again as as cosmopolitan and European as our two World Cup uh, opponents. Mm hmm, and it's it's kind of a unified international delight as it is a uh, film by an italian director that takes place in england Mm -hmm. and involves a lot of mimes who are french so (laughs) we just we have a whole melting pot going on here (laughs) indeed john what movie is it this week we watched blow up have a listen to this Keep still, keep still. Listen, keep still. You can smoke if you like. Slowly, slowly. Against the beat. It. I don't. I know they don't do the girl of impetito, but I was trying to think of like some kind of like jazzy '60s, like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you mention that because uh, I think. Well, let's first talk about. Let's first set up the the legacy of this movie. Um, because okay. I believe folks, uh, if they haven't seen it already, they, they clearly its influence and fingerprints are all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Namely, a movie that we watched before, The Conversation, which is essentially this movie, just uh, twists a little bit more for American audiences. <laughs> Do you think Francis Ford Coppola ripped him off? Uh, John, I, could, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> a brash New York Italian-American ripping off uh, uh, another Italian, a countryman? <laughs> Come on. Is there no honor among thieves or plagiarists? Yeah. In, in any event, um, not only is it indicative of another classic American movie, the conversation, but also this whole idea of voyeurism and kind of mm-hmm. implicating yourself in because you know that's a that's a major theme of filmmaking and well, mm-hmm. it's a major theme of this entire medium is voyeurism because we literally have a window into other people's lives. Exactly. And that's what the the whole plot of this movie basically entails. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the conversation because going into it, I knew that this was a major inspiration to the conversation, Mm -hmm. and I was hoping for uh, the conversation level enjoyment. (laughs) Um, But I didn't, I didn't enjoy this movie. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) but it's it's a weird it's a weirder kind of non enjoyment, whereas you know movies like Thelma and Louise and. Um, I don't know, American Beauty, I genuinely hated, and you can't convince me otherwise. This is like, this was like watching Playtime again for me, which is like, I'm not enjoying myself, and I feel dumb because of it. I'm like, why am I not getting this? Well, yeah, that's another important piece of context to set up, is that this is whereas Francis Ford Coppola basically took this movie and made it more palatable to American audiences. This is a movie directed by a giant in Italian cinema named Michelangelo Antonioni. As you said, this You feel, you could feel the kind of artistic impression of this movie immediately. However, if Antonioni was a a video game designer, the the default <laughs> difficulty is hard. <laughs> it's it's high. It's he does not make movies for mainstream audiences, and that's why uh, I think maybe there's there's some air of pretension to his movies, but also kind of classic European like oh you're you're not quite getting it or it's somewhere off there. Like the mean, the meaning yeah. is there, however your enjoyment level or or what you can grasp onto emotionally is somewhere somewhat off in the distance. Um, I should, we should say this is a. Um, this movie was made in light of the success of uh, a movie, his movie before this, which is called La Ventura. That's also like a mystery thriller, but the mystery element is somewhat of uh, kind of off to the side, and it's mo- much more philosophical. And in this movie, is much mm. the same way. See, but that's the other thing. I didn't get any of the philosophy, mm. and again, I think I did go, go in with the wrong mindset because this has a very good, intriguing plot, and there's bountiful opportunities for a nice mystery story, a kind of noir story where a man kind of gets in over his head, but unfortunately it doesn't really explore that all that much. And again, I'll just get to the biggest problem. It's so slow. (laughs) This movie is so slow, and so much just ends up having no consequence whatsoever. And maybe that's the point, maybe because it's moving at the speed of life, guys. (laughs) But for me, I was just so supremely bored. (laughs) Yeah, so... I, I'm speaking to kind of the general idea. The plot is that a photographer, and this this comes in an hour into the film, so please, like, uh, <laughs> maybe unbuckle your seatbelt, relax a bit, maybe stand up. And I remember, I remember watching this movie and thinking, like, if this was a Marvel movie, he already had a, would have had his superpowers by now. Yeah. This is so boring. <laughs> In any event, the plot of the movie is a uh, photographer, a mod photographer. We'll speak to mm-hmm. mod culture in a second. Um, he's living his life in London. Um, this film takes place over one crazy day. Mm-hmm. in the life Let me of, tell you. In the life of a photographer named Thomas. And um, he's kind of living a loose existence. You know, he's got a couple of assignments, but... What it, What he really indulges is, is going to the park and capturing um, people at their most vulnerable moments. In this case, mm. he finds a young couple uh who uh, may be carrying on a clandestine affair and Ew. but what he, scandalous yes, but what he finds in developing these photos is that he could he may have inadvertently captured a murder mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where the thriller comes, the thriller component of the movie comes in, is um, what exactly he's seeing. And that's that's where also the title comes in, Blow Up, because he attempts to, this, the detail of the murder is far, way off in the background, and when he blows it up, it becomes more distorted. And that's really speaks to the theme, like what exactly he's seeing, is it a version of reality, or is it all in his head? So that's speaking to the theme. That's speaking as a film critic, John, but, but as you said, we're not just film critics, we're also consumer advocates. Mm-hmm. And I, like you, thought, you know, if, if this movie is a thriller, shouldn't it thrill me? <laughs> and unfortunately, it, it really doesn't. Speaking to the plot itself, there is there is some interesting introduction where you, we, you spoke of mimes. And that's our first, mm-hmm. our opening shot follows this troupe of about 30 mimes hanging off the back <laughs> of a jeep. Just kind of running amok in this uh, North L- London suburb, begging people for money. Weirdly, yeah. <laughs> but that's chased <laughs> like by... aggressively panhandling. Yeah. Let's call it that. <laughs> a- a very aggressive. Yeah, I would. I would. I th- thank God that nobody was carrying in North London that day. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd just be blood in the streets. But <laughs> yep. In any event, uh, that's chased by a hard cut to uh, Thomas, the photographer, um, just snapping people in a workhouse, like these very. Mm-hmm. Uh, gray old kind of destitute people who who were forced to you know force into this labor camp which was kind of which was kind of the the norm in uh, 60s London and from there, yeah, he just kind of lives his life. He takes a he takes a good assignment where he's he's really engaged with this model, very physically engaged with this model. Mm-hmm. And then later, he takes it's a... it's literally shot like a sex scene. Yeah. Like he's getting a close, and they're like getting really into it. Like, yes, yes, give me that pose, yes. Yeah. And he's like sneaking kisses in between the poses. Yeah, it seems to, it seems to be relishing his work. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But that's followed by an assignment that he hates. Very artificial, you know. He's he's snapping at the models, like, "No, you look awful, terrible," yeah, and really admonishing them. So they, it, it's interesting the contrast at the very beginning: positive scenes followed by negative scenes. And I thought maybe like the the filmmaking was being very loose. Well, and I think that was or the point early on is that we're supposed to capture the boredom in his day to day life. Mm-hmm. So I thought that's why it was. So well, the excitement slow at and the, the beginning, because they're exactly yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's why I thought, like, oh, this movie is obviously ramping up to something. That's why it takes us an hour to actually get to the clandestine meeting where he snaps, you know, forbidden love or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, again, it doesn't really escalate its speed or its tone from there. We just kind of like see him living his life. He goes to an antique shop. And the antique shop made absolutely no sense to me. Why is it in this movie? (laughs) Yeah, that seems like a complete diversion. Um, Again, part of his day, because this movie takes place over the course of one day, Mm -hmm. is he he visits an antique shop, um, meets a surly owner, Mm -hmm. and then does make uh, a purchase of a a big, uh, I, I believe it's an airplane propeller. Um, uh yes, like an antique airplane propeller, but he doesn't buy it from him. Uh he, the old man, the old crotchety man shoo's him away, but then he comes back to talk to the original owner, who's this young kind of sexier, vivacious woman, and mm-hmm. that's when he buys it. And he's going to put it in the back of his Rolls-Royce. By the way, <laughs> photography I did not know pays that well. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it was the he height used. of uh haute couture. Oh, okay. (laughs) Mon frère. Yeah, maybe we should also. Do you want me to speak to kind of the the mise en scène, kind of the the time that this movie took place? Yeah. Because I think that's that's also part of its appeal, not just the, oh, what what does it all mean, kind of the ambiguous nature of the plot and maybe the thematic richness, but also the actual culture that it's in. No, yeah, and I think that's definitely part of it, is the fact that this movie is definitely. Capturing the time and place, mm-hmm. and it seems like it is trying to comment on that a little bit, but it doesn't. It doesn't tie into the larger. Maybe it does a little bit tie into the larger murder mystery, because again, we're focused on you know this 60s going into the 70s, couture culture where everyone's kind of too obsessed with what they're doing that they don't really notice the larger issues. Like, we get these little hints that it's like the neighborhood's getting gentrified, they're tearing down older buildings and putting up new ones. And we also get a quick little scene where he's complaining about the new inhabitants to his town. There's like a gay couple with a poodle, and he like (laughs) sneers at them. Um, Yeah, that that little detail I didn't quite understand, but in any (laughs) event. Well, yeah, and again, how does it tie back to the larger mystery? Maybe because eventually when he realized someone did get murdered, and they might get away with it, he frantically goes around to different people who were at a party or at a concert, you know, tries to get their attention, like, guys, this is really important, and they're all too high to really notice. Yeah, And maybe that's one of the comments, the larger themes that this movie's trying to explore, is during this time period, people were just too too inward-focused, too obsessed with, you know, getting higher with their own work, that they kind of miss larger, more important things that are happening. Maybe, yeah, it's a question of whether he's kind of indulging in this sixties subculture, this mod culture. I guess I'll I'll speak briefly. This a this is a mod movie and by mod I mean you know, in the 60s, the sexual revolution and, and kind of loose sexual mores and free drug use, there were a bunch of subcultures that kind of popped up, one of which was this mod culture. It's, it was a little more upper crust. You could see, like, the the fashion was really suits, maybe brighter colors. Um, I think it was pretty well off. The mods, who the, the subculture that they fought against, were called rockers. Um, Mm-hmm. These are people which uh, we see towards the end. Yeah, these are kind of more lower class people. Although the band, yeah, we'll speak to the band later. But um, mm-hmm. the rockers were a little bit more lower class, and they evolved into the punk scene um, mm-hmm. in the later seventies. Give him a song again. So it's it's capturing not just a time but maybe also a fantasy surrounding I guess that because yeah because then not only is it this this high fashion and you know how well off the mods are but also I mean Thomas is. It's it's pretty much like uh, Andy Warhol's factory. <laughs> there are just um, mm-hmm. models and beautiful women, just kind of like lying around. Uh, two of them come to come to his place and expect to be photographed, or maybe maybe a little something else. They're expecting. Oh yeah, it's a it's a freaking conga line of sexy women who just want to jump his bone. <laughs> yeah. you know, and it, and it's again, it captures that supreme boredom. It's like anyone else would love this kind of lifestyle, but he's just grown accustomed to it, so now he doesn't really care. No, and and maybe. I think not only an issue with the plotting, as you said, like our the the main crux of this thriller plot. I put thriller in quotes because again the tone doesn't really reflect those thrills or the mm. paranoia of say implicating yourself in a murder, but also maybe the performances don't really capture that as well. You mentioned that Thomas this this doesn't happen until about an hour into the movie, and Thomas is you know somewhat somewhat kind of his his heart is somewhat hastened. You know he's kind of <laughs> like asking around about it, but he still doesn't seem that bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you see some sweat on his face and, and there's some the, and none of the other, and as you said, none of the other actors seem to you know show any care that he's that he may have you know captured a murder. On his on his and his camera and in, in his photographs, um, but the one actress and the one performance that I really will praise is the woman who may be carrying on this affair that Thomas captures, mm-hmm. and that and she's played by Vanessa Redgrave, and she really kind of like brings home the the importance of the story, and you know when she desperately pleads for like his photographs, and and kind of plays along when he's when he's pranking her and and you know playing coy with her. Like she mm-hmm. really captures the, the the heart and soul of, of what's at stake here. You're absolutely right. And again, going back to that whole thriller aspect, we never really feel like Tom is in any danger. And that's a big, you know, part of if you really want us to <laughs> stakes. That, yeah, you should have stakes in here. Yeah, in if you farm. really want us to buy into that paranoia, we need to actually feel like he's in danger. Yeah. But besides her, it doesn't seem like anyone knows that he even took these pictures. And so there's no reason for them to come at. I mean, does he get followed a little bit at one point? No, other than that, I don't think he gets followed. Well, one thing is that, and this is where you, you really kind of lose your connection to Thomas, because, like, okay, you, you follow him through this day, and maybe you can understand his behavior, but at one point, he's, he's kind of investigating, and he has all these blow-ups of this, what he feels is now a murder scene. Mm-hmm. He later leaves to find his, uh, one of his patrons named Ron, comes back, and his, and his compound has been broken into, but he seems so kind of, like, blasé about it. He seems so, like, disaffected by it. And I'm like, wait, exactly. wait, shouldn't you, like, call the police? Like, this is where your your understanding of human behavior kind of, there's a disconnect between it and the movie. <laughs> In fact, I, I, point, we should yes. probably explain, he never calls the police. He literally thinks he's seen a murder, but at no point does he reach out to any authority, does he reach out to anybody other than his best friend? No, he he reaches out to his agent, of all yeah. people. <laughs> like, that's the person who can help. So, I don't know, again, maybe that speaks to how maybe insulated and, as you said, self-centered this perhaps culture could be, mm-hmm. but again you also want to be involved in the story like, like the idea of like oh what is the nature of our reality and, and being a voyeur and not implicating ourselves in other people's lives but when we do oh, was potentially dangerous for us like there needs to be an emotional component that hooks us mm-hmm. and so far that's what the movie's missing the light was very beautiful in the park this morning a shot should be very good anyway I need them My private life's already in a mess. It would be a disaster if... So what? Nothing like a little disaster for sorting things out. You ever done any modeling? Fashion stuff for me. Got it. Hold that. Not many girls can stand as well as that. But then also their kind of relationship takes a weird turn because she comes to go pick up the pictures. They they, they arrange this kind of like meeting. Yeah. That he's gonna deliver the pictures to her. And instead they end up like smoking a joint together and she kinda of calms down. And then they kinda of start like a little courtship. They start kinda of like fooling around. And then, you know, it's implied that it's like, oh, she's trying to get the upper hand on him. She's trying to steal like the originals. She's trying to steal the role. But then he swaps it and like, this really should have been a tense moment, but it really wasn't. Because, again, it's so lackadaisical. And, again, maybe it's because it's capturing it at the speed of life. And the idea is that they're both high, so it's like there's no kind of stakes or drama. They're all too loosey-goosey to really notice what's going on. I, I, just, I don't know. This movie just made me feel dumb because I don't get it. <laughs> and I think, and is, is that my problem? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that because you and I, we, we love the Internet movie database, and we'll visit a film's trivia section um, mm-hmm. a, the second after we see it. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of superlatives in, uh, in IMDb trivia sections. A lot of little interesting tidbits. This one is definitely of all the trivia sections i visit visited on that website. This is definitely mm-hmm. the fart sniffiest. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Every item is like a quote about the oh, like this, these are the ideas that Antonioni really wanted to illuminate, and and mm-hmm. here's what the lead actor thought of of his portrayal of this photographer and. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave reflecting 20 years later on the influence of this movie. Is, and it was like, yeah, it's, that's great that you, you know, have these ideas, but why not make a treatise? Yeah. Why did you make a, a bad thriller movie instead? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean bad, I mean just like ineffective. Yeah, and I do kind of want to give it some credit because it's like, what's the other option? They kind of turn it around and turn it into a, like a capital I important movie. And that would still come off as pretentious as well. If it's you know like too bombastic and a little too exciting, but honestly, like there's got to be a balancing act in between that. You can have your movie kind of be slow and kind of like a slow burn, but you know you end up have, end up having to light that fire. There's no fire. Here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well it's a very slow. Yeah, it's a. Again, this this is billed, at least to American audiences, dumb Americans like us, <laughs> mm-hmm. as a thriller. But yeah, it's like a it's like a candle under a giant you know iron kettle. It's not gonna. Mm-hmm. It's just not moving. And this is what, the other reason why I brought up the conversation. The conversation is far superior to this because you feel the stakes immediately. You're emotionally invested in uh, Harry Call versus Thomas the photographer. And well, it's like Harry Call has like a real personality. That's He's true. Like, yeah. A well, little at least bit you more you relatable. understand him. You understand him and his behavior. Exactly. Whereas like Tom, you understand that he's like bored, but, and maybe that's the point, like, that's part of the reason why he's so kind of churlish and just kind of like rude to everybody. He's just mm. bored. He's just looking for reactions and rises out of people. But again, Harry Call is much more relatable with the fact that, I don't know, even though he is a little aspergers and obviously <laughs> clearly way too paranoid. It's like we understand once the stakes get ramped up, and he thinks he's being followed, we understand that, and we're invested. Here, I was never invested at no, all. No, and and I don't think it matters that you know one movie takes place in '70s San Francisco and the other one takes place in swinging London. Mm-hmm. Um, like you need to you need to base your movie in real, relatable human behavior. And this movie just kind of misses that. It doesn't matter if he's a mod or a rocker or a hippie or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or again, like as you said, a, a guy who might be lightly touched and you know takes his job too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I will also point to another. Great thing that that the conversation achieves in this movie doesn't quite do is in is in the couple that we're following. Mm-hmm. Like well, again, you kind of understand their motivation, and once the twist does happen, and it appears that maybe you know the the person you know who doesn't want to be surveilled isn't as innocent as they appear. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's much more there's you've invested much more kind of emotionally into that, and you're kind of shocked by the twist here, like when. When Thomas returns to the park and actually does confirm that there's a corpse there, and then later when he comes back, the corpse isn't there. I just thought, like, okay, maybe. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> I just thought maybe he hasn't seen a movie like this before. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or maybe it's all a dream. Maybe yeah. the corpse was never really there. Like, that's mm-hmm. the other thing, too. We talk about, you know, there's obviously like a little interplay with perceptions and reality, but again, like, that's the only instance of it, and that and the ending, which is probably one of the emptiest stupidest most (laughs) pretentious endings i've ever seen well at least something in the plot comes full circle because at the very end we return to the oh yeah we started out with the mimes and then we end with the mimes awesome (laughs) so something was set up and pay off i suppose (laughs) yeah and again maybe it goes back to that whole like that attitude of like being too internal and it's like it's all about your reality and so the ending is uh, he ends up wandering through the park, he gets to these tennis courts and then these all the mimes show up. Well we should up, also they, say that, that there's no hope in solving the mystery at this point. Like he's kinda exactly. given up. All his photographs are gone and the corpse is gone and as far as he knows, you know, there's and the bad no bad guy no solving away. this murder. Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but instead mimes <laughs> show up. Instead of referencing again better movies, but <laughs> Exactly. Um and these mimes show up and they start playing a fake game of tennis. Mm-hmm. And at one point you start to actually hear the tennis ball going back and forth, and they hit it out of bounds in front of Tom. And Tom, well, first, yeah, first, picking they, the ball they up implicate and throwing Tom it into it by uh, faking knocking the, the pretending to knock the ball over the fence and they ask Tom to retrieve it. The guy who, mm-hmm. again, isn't a mime, even though <laughs> there are like 20 other mimes <laughs> just standing around waiting for him to play along, and he, and yeah. he finally does. And then we do, you know, we start to hear the tennis ball. He actually starts playing along, and we're entered into this whimsy, this, you know, unreality. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, John, because you know, uh, Antonioni has an idea. <laughs> mm. He's implicating not just the idea of voyeurism and kind of playing with, or playing with the audience who, you know, come into a movie as voyeurs, getting a window into another person's life but also um, whether you know, we feel like we're, we're trapped in this unreality of a movie as well. So, again, I, I understand the ideas. I understand what he's trying to say. <laughs> it's just you have to say it in an interesting way is the thing. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, again, you're I... just delivering a, a dry thesis. And... Mm-hmm. and also, I guess it goes back to the whole, if, if he has anything close to an arc, as a photographer, the whole point is that he captures life exactly as it is. And so, well, I, I think guess. that's the idea. That's yeah, the, and that's then the at the end, too. he's putting. He's at putting the lo- end, he's. I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> <laughs> at the end, he, he again. He's he's welcoming this idea that it's like maybe reality's not a, like maybe we make it ourselves. I don't know. Well, yeah, and another important plot element. Ron, his agent or patron or whoever the heck he is, who knows? Best friend. <laughs> <laughs> They're it seemed to be putting together a coffee table book about Senator around poverty and human suffering again taking these portraits that he took at the at the workhouse exactly so again who knows what how exactly that plays into it i mean maybe but that's also, why he's he's indulging he wants, the unreality of the tennis game who knows yeah and he also wants to put the f- photographs he's sna- not he snapped of the loveling couple in the middle of it yeah he says like because it's like an upswing it's like oh it's sad then happy then sad again i i don't uh, know i don't know how that relates
1: yeah, I don't think so, Tom's
0: a very good artist Artist, I'll be honest so it, here's a newsflash to any classic film fans uh, Antonioni does an ambiguous movie that frustrates and compels audiences <laughs> I, know, I know the this critics is love it this is a shocking twist <laughs> what is this hereditary gosh <laughs> cinema score D plus <laughs> Uh, in spite of that, I still find it intriguing. Maybe, maybe it is for aspiring film snobs out there to watch at least once. Mm. But just be prepared to not enjoy it as much as well, any conversation or Chinatown or any other movies. One Hour Photo, Unfriended, The Dark Web, <laughs> any other movie about voyeurism <laughs> and you know unreality. How about Nerve? Have you ever seen Nerve? Remember no, Nerve? It's not very good. The only okay. the only good thing about seeing Nerve is that they filmed it in New York, so it's a lot of oranges and new black ca- actors in there. Nice. Have you seen any of his other films? Uh, no, other than Laventura, no. Okay, what's Laventura? Again, that movie I referenced at the very beginning, if you were listening. <laughs> no, no, I, was, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> that's, that's basically the movie that kicked this kicked off uh his English producers basically wanted to hire him in that it's an Italian movie set on the I believe the Amalfi coast, but it's some beautiful Mediterranean destination. Um during a vacation a woman disappears and the their friend group and needs to, to just basically talks it out sort of and then just kinda leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Much like blow up, exactly. It's almost, you have an intriguing it's, it's almost, premise. Yeah, that's that's why I was, I was I was intrigued by the mod culture in the in the the grave compared to the black and white beauty of Laventura. Um, this this movie initially felt a little bit different, but I was like, oh, we're hitting all the same beats, aren't we? Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. They they noted that you know this is like one of his first color films. You know, like he's a world famous painter. It's like this is his cubist phase. (laughs) This is when he's this is his yellow phase. You know, and I was again just I don't is it wrong to kind of feel like this is being a little too pretentious. No, like, I mean I- no. Again, because you, you, you're perfectly right to feel that way. I mean, okay, you've, you've justified that opinion. I mean, already, I think you're kind of putting yourself up against the uh, the wall of, let's say, European cinema. And again, like say, feeling stupid if you don't, if you're mm-hmm. not, if you're not open to the genius of it. But mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, no, I I see the the quote genius of it. <laughs> it's just a matter <laughs> of whether I enjoyed it, and the answer is no. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Like I mean, again, like, like, Guernica is a great painting or something, you know, I can, <laughs> I understand its greatness. Like, do I want to see that versus, I, I don't know, a Thomas Kinkade? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what would I rather have hanging in my house? Yeah. Uh, a Goya or a Bob Ross? Yeah, probably a Bob Ross. Absolutely. Oh, I saw this great episode of Bob Ross. They're playing it at this bar. And <laughs> what he did was he, he put, like, tape in a circle around the actual canvas, painted something perfect in it, and then pulled the tape away, and then added little details. So it's like you get it framed in the circle, but then stuff's popping out. It was a really cool 3D effect. Yeah. Nice. Yes, I'll, I'll, Bob Ross, a guy, Slash, Bob Ross, really talented paper painter. Yeah. that reminds me of something I'll be spotlighting later. So, uh, oh, oh my, should I we? Know, that's should be, Ooh, ooh, should we? Should we maybe get into it now? Uh, indeed. So <laughs> to sum up, uh, blow up, eh, <laughs> <laughs> eh. indifferent. Yeah, it's whatever. Yep. Well, it's that not not whatever, but again, just prepare yourself for a potentially frustrating experience when it doesn't comport to, let's say, the thriller movie you were expecting. Exactly. Uh, but that leads us into our next segment. Yes, work it for me, baby. Work it. Yes, yes, this is Spotlight. Yes! Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie! It's time! Yes, <laughs> give me more. Give me more. No, more. no, wrong. Awful. <laughs> Dreadful. Now. <laughs> I would well, be a actually... photographer, just because I find a uh, new cameras so so hard to get the manual focus right stuff. It's just terrible, awful. <laughs> that's why you just put it to the P setting. Yeah, that's true. I'm a talentless hack, so I just put it to the P <laughs> setting. <laughs> um, but this actually leads me into my spotlight for the week, Greg. Okay. And because I'll this just tie back to Bob Ross, but continue. Okay. This week, I finally got a chance to catch up on the new FX series, Pose. Ah, this is the the latest uh, Ryan Murphy joint. Um. Okay. Let's the, the, the fingers the dirty fingerprints of Ryan Murphy are definitely felt <laughs> dirty, here. Dirty John. Dirty <laughs> John. He's he's an unparalleled genius. <laughs> Between the wide angles, the, the the bombastic colors that make your eyes hurt. <laughs> well, okay. So that's kind of what makes it this series work is the fact that you have three creators. You have Stephen Cal uh, Stephen Cannell's ch- mm-hmm. ca- candles channels i don't know <laughs> uh brian falcon and ryan murphy yeah so initially when they uh, pitched it i think steven and brad wanted to make like a hard you know realistic portrayal of gay and drag culture in the 1980s new york they wanted mm-hmm. basically it to be vinyl or uh what's that other show uh the deuce they wanted it to be basically like a gay version of The Deuce. Okay. And Ryan Murphy came in and was like, I don't do realistic, come on, I do <laughs> over-the-top and stupid. So they've kind of <laughs> merged the two, and it's actually kind of brilliant. Okay. So the series centers around this thing called ball culture i don't know if you're familiar with it because i definitely was not familiar with it where they oh, wait do these... you haven't seen paris is burning or is paris burning or what's it called? i haven't what no come on why do you think we do this podcast of course <laughs> i haven't seen the paris okay is burning. all right all right we'll get we'll get back we'll get to that maybe one day okay it's far far in the future when we run out of movies <laughs> how dare you um so it's again it's an exploration of ball culture in 80s new york um which were basically these competitive drag shows you know, they come in with a theme, they get scores, and they walk away with trophies. Basically, RuPaul's Drag Race in live. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, although, uh, a lot of the people end up being transgender, whereas drag is, you know, you're a man dressed as a woman. These are full transgender people. And, you know, this movie, uh, not this movie, this TV show obviously earned, there's a lot of credit because, like, 50% of the cast is actually transgender. So, mm-hmm. a first. And it it achieves this, like, Absolutely, perfectly, brilliant balance between like high stakes drama and low stakes like stupidity. Because every week they do this ball, and you know they prepare for the week, and uh, the the competing people are all part of these houses, like the House of Evangelista and House of Abundance. So it's like a really so gay it's just version. like Game of Thrones, huh? Exactly, it's like the gayest version of Game of Thrones you ever imagined. <laughs> so so you it have sounds like Game of Thrones, boy <laughs> So you have this. All the gay characters are dead. (laughs) You have this, like, again, like, who's going to win the ball this weekend? You know, all the little interpersonal dramas. And then. You contrast it with their real-life problems like getting diagnosed with AIDS or I don't know if I'm going to eat today. Like, <laughs> okay. and, it kind of, and, it, and it kind of works because if you are living this really harsh existence, living in the school of hard knocks, like, of course they would be obsessed with winning the ball every week because that's the only win they get out of their tragic, tragic lives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I read a profile of Ryan Murphy in, in the lead-up to this in The New Yorker, and he does speak to just how, how difficult it was for these uh, queens and transgender people who have been ostracized from their families and, and mm-hmm. left their home. Like, and as you said, living in relative poverty,
1: mm-hmm. like,
0: what are they, they going to actually focus on? Exactly. And so it's, it's kind of like finding, finding joy in spite of the, the kind of tragedy around you. Mm-hmm. And that's where the houses kind of come in. These houses, the collectives, are basically the only place these gay and transgender people could go. Mm-hmm. So they basically pool all the resources, form a little house, so they're not homeless. So that's why we have all these houses. And uh, the season, uh, the series, basically starts off with um, our main character. I mean, one of our main characters, uh, Bianca. She gets diagnosed with HIV. Um, she has options, but it's like, it's still, it's 1987, it's still pretty much a death sentence. And so she decides to leave her current house, form a new one, and kind of give people the opportunity. And this is basically how she plans to reconcile her life and leave her mark on the world. So that's, you know, pretty powerful stuff right there. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, at the end, at the end of the week, it's like, who's going to win the ball? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, at least every episode has like a, as an arc or like a... Exactly. And so you have that... Yeah, and then you, you have that high stakes, like, you know, being diagnosed with HIV is no joke, but then, you know, when she's leaving the house, her quote-unquote mother, this, you know, very powerful, very fierce trans woman who can pass with the sunlight as high as my cheekbone, you know, co- like, does this whole, you know, fantastical, over-the-top dramatic tirade, and at the end, she reapplies her lipsticks, shoots a look into the mirror and goes, justice! <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm clapping, I'm like, eee! You know, so... It's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. How does the show look? Is it does it look conventional or is it like like I, I saw an ad that i supposedly is supposed to look like Paris is burning like Super 8 documentary footage? No, I would say it's very slick. Again, it looks just like the Deuce. It's it's okay. a perfect like slick, almost David Fincher esque recreation of '80s New York. Okay. And so that's the other kind well, of conventional. Like, is, exactly. Okay. I mean, it's an absolutely gorgeous show to look at, but there's no... there's. I don't really feel like there's any kind of real stamp to it. Mm. Again, All just right. kind of going for that, like, you know, very kind of cold, almost neon lit occasionally, 80s New York. So it's like, you know, it's grim. It's got dirt on it. You know, it's not that... It's not the clean Giuliani era, let's say that. All right. Speaking to the limits of prestige television, sounds like to me... Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That's um, why movies, movies will always be better. <laughs> the other thing too is again you can f- feel those Ryan Murphy grubby fingerprints. It always has to keep reminding you that it's the 80s. Not it, like it's like literally like one step going too far. Mm-hmm. Like one of uh, one of the plots is about um, the guy who plays Quicksilver in the new X-Men movies. Well, um, yeah, uh, Evan Peters. Evan Ryan Peters Murphy him in everything. Exactly. He's one of those, you know, stable mates. He falls in love with a transgender sex worker. Um, okay. but he's already married with two kids and also he works for Donald Trump <gasps> ooh <laughs> yeah like there's those stupid little like hints like that like when we first meet him his boss is doing like coke off a mirror and stuff like that and it's like it's like two steps away from like a lame joke like check out my new portable phone it's only eight pounds Wow it can't get any lighter than that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the Kardashians in the uh, American Crime Story, the People versus O.J. Simpson. Kardashian, never heard that name before. They'll probably never amount to anything. <laughs> but yes, it's a very, it's a great show, very intriguing. Again, if you have an affinity for like high camp, like I do, again mixed with that kind of like realistic down to earth drama, I think it's it's an utter delight. So I highly okay. recommend it. All yep. right, I, I, was, I, I yeah, gotta say, yeah, right. but Greg, of course, Greg hates gay people, so he's I like, just, I don't want to watch. I don't hate. Show. I only hate one gay person. That's Ryan Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Without Ryan Murphy, there would be no TV. <laughs> that's not true. Shonda Rhimes would have eight thousand TV shows <laughs> instead. <laughs> Actually, if there's more room for Shonda Rhymes, then there'd be 10,000 Shonda Rhymes. shows. Yeah. She already has 8,000 currently. Yeah. Same with that... Uh, oh, who's the Flash guy? Greg Berlanti? Is that his guy, that guy's name? Oh, yeah. He's got... yeah. The Flash, does. Arrow, yeah, the Arrowverse, whatever. See, okay, that actually really bothers me because <laughs> we watch... Me and, me and my fiancé watch uh, The Flash and Supergirl. Yeah. Those are the ones we like because, again, that combines like the kind of high joy high camp of superheroes as opposed to like without going too stupid like legends of tomorrow is just like ridiculously dumb and then arrow is still kind of like trying to be a little bit grounded like dealing with like black lives matter and shit like that like, <laughs> wait <laughs> what <laughs> exactly they have like a they had like an arc this past season about black lives matter but then they every season they have to do like a big crossover event but you only get, like, one-fourth of it if you only watch, like, one show. <laughs> so it's like, one episode well, exactly. will end on a cliffhanger. How they, that's how they hook you with serialized yeah, exactly. narrative. <laughs> but we're watching, like, we're we watching the, the this past season of flesh. <laughs> it's like an episode that ends with them in a parallel dimension ruled by Nazis. <laughs> and then the very next episode is their Christmas episode. They're back in the normal lab. Everything is fine. <laughs> Great. Well, it shows yeah. what a utopia living <laughs> under a Nazi rule would be. <laughs> I was joking, people. (laughs) Please nobody take that out of context. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. Greg loves Nazis. Greg's a proud boy. Well, John, getting into my spotlight Mm. and the theme of uh, unreality and uh, Mm. what what is truth versus fiction, uh, I do want to spotlight a documentary that's about a, a very prolific and famous art forger. Oh. John, do you know who Mark Landis is? Vaguely, I think I know this documentary. Yes, this uh, this is a documentary called Art and Craft, and it's essentially a profile of uh, Mark Landis and his exploits over the last thirty years. Um, basically, he is a world class weirdo, <laughs> <laughs> um, who has a, has some skills, who has had a, an interesting life. He's kind of he kind of, he might be lightly actually. Uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. He is touched. Um, <laughs> Have a, um, do you really have to say it that way? That doesn't I, sound very PC. <laughs> I, that's that, that's kind of the way I put it, because at the end of this documentary, I'm like, I don't want to spend one more minute with this person. Um, <laughs> but basically, he's dedicated his life to um, the the art of forgery, basically mm-hmm. taking, creating fake versions of Picassos and of name artists and doing relatively small pieces. Again, we're not talking about the Mona Lisa or any big pieces like that. But again, kind of more lost and esoteric uh, pieces by famous artists. And submitting them for free. You know, it was always under this this guise of like, oh, I inherited these from my art-loving sister who recently passed away. Uh, And then basically uh, submits them and donates them to local, uh, mostly local. Again, uh, he lives in uh, Mississippi, so... Basically, art museums around the Southeast United States, and some, some as far as Europe. And, but basically, he submits them for free, and then come to find, after, after some curation, that they are fake. Mm-hmm. And the reason he's escaped uh, prosecution this whole time is that he's never actually stolen any money from people. Again, he gives them <laughs> away. <laughs> and again, he seems like he's giving it away to smaller museums who probably don't have the resources to spot a forgery immediately. Like, he's no. obviously not giving these away to the Met. No, they're, and uh, although it's a profile of this guy, they're, they're the, the villain, or not the villain, but his foil <laughs> in the piece is a art curator from Ohio who uh, has made it his life work to basically foil this guy. <laughs> I picture him with a mustache, and a big overcoat, and maybe a top hat, like, yes, I will spot these fakes. No, it's not, it's not a mustache. Instead, it's a, it's, a, it's a dad goatee. Uh, okay. It's a sharp goatee. It's a. It's an authoritative voice. Um, you know, he's, it may be in another life he'd be like a an officer, a police officer, maybe. You know, going uh, to schools okay. and giving uh, assemblies and presentations. <laughs> he sounds like the Billy Mitchell of this. <laughs> if this were fistful no, I, I he's he's cut more sympathetically than that. <laughs> okay. If yeah, anything, yeah. Mark Landis is the Billy Mitchell of this documentary. <laughs> uh, is he? Well, I mean, he doesn't really sound like he seems like a very unassuming guy. Is he like an over the top character who's? Uh, well, yeah. So he is. Well, when I say unassuming, so he. He's so he's so meek for one thing. Mm-hmm. Like his uh, the one problem I had is that you can actually barely hear Mark Landis. His 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 voice is so hard pitched and barely above like a whisper. Mm. Um, although his his vocab- his vocabulary is incredible and th- there is like a genius behind him. Um, th- there is also something very alienating and off about him, which is why he kind of has this solemn existence and also maybe has kind of been able to evade authority in that, like, nobody really knows who he is. Um, mm-hmm. And the, his cover story isn't only that, like, oh, a family member died and bequeath, a, a family member of mine has died and bequeathed me these old classic pieces. Um, he's also pretended to be a priest because he's found, you know, people are very receptive to religious authorities. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it's clear that he's just doing this for the sport of it, for the fun of it. And... That that's what's also amazing too is in that it, he's apparently a world class forger, but what he does is kind of so rudimentary. Okay. He, like I I believe the the big the big moment in the trailer and also this happens very early on in the film is like uh he's he's saying like oh these I'm I'm recreating this 17th century piece um you know there there are all these acrylics and things I'm gonna use colored pencils. <laughs> <laughs> like at at one point we just go to see him get art supplies at Hobby Lobby. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's... I have expected him to like paint, like just print on canvas, like the original, and then just paint over it, just so it has that texture. <laughs> John, you're not far off because the one we don't see him kind of in, do a complete piece, but the one that we do see is a very small wooden placard. Mm-hmm. And basically, what he does is he glues a piece of printer, he prints out the the artwork itself on printer paper, just glues it to the placard, and basically draws over it and distresses it with coffee and tea stains. <laughs> and that's it. That that works. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's 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 kind of amazing, and I think you're speaking to, yeah, maybe the the Memphis M- Museum of Classic Art, you know, Impressionist mm-hmm. Art doesn't have the the top curator to actually spot these forgeries. I think one thing that the the documentary, although it's it's a good documentary, it's kind of a fascinating story. And I think there's a better version of it to be made, mm-hmm. one that shows kind of his his entire process, possibly another one that also implicates the museums in like. You know, they're not going to say no to the possibility of, like, a Picasso running into their hands, you know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting because you seem, you said he kind of does it for the sport. Yeah. And I don't know, I've, I've read about, I don't know where I read this about forgeries, but it's also, like, I mean, there is also the question, like, does it really matter? If this is a perfect recreation of the actual piece, isn't that just as good as having the piece? And isn't it more important... That we expose people to it, regardless of whether it's the super authentic version of it. and that's that's what the that's where the final act of this movie kind of comes around where where mm-hmm. it culminates is uh, a museum in I believe Cincinnati does put on a a entire exhibition of mark landis's work okay. um, and I do believe they put not only i think I think the originals side by side with his forgeries oh interesting okay. Yeah, and that's where he gets to meet this uh, this curator who's made it his life work life work to take him down. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, so it doesn't like it doesn't sound like he tries to make his pursuits more noble than that, though. Like Mark Landis is never like, oh, I, you know, I do this because you know people need to see these. It's like he he seems like he's like again like a little merry prankster. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, okay, all right. Yeah. And the and the guy was from Oklahoma, I misspoke earlier. I'm just oh, okay. I'm just gonna correct myself before anybody else, you know, accused <laughs> me of You're so defensive, Greg. Come on. The internet is a place of positivity and love. Okay. <laughs> sure. Everyone just likes to comment and mansplain only positive things, <laughs> like, hey, I just you know, actually you're doing great. Yeah. And, again, I just wish it could... It's only a 90-minute documentary, and I wish it could delve into more. And also, the tone is is pretty much the same. It's this whimsical, like, oh, who's this crazy character, you know, going around... (laughs) I can already picture the music in my head just like jaunty little piano in the background. <laughs> you're not you're not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> pluck a pluck a guitar string too in there. Mm-hmm. But also again, I wish the other big question they explored. Mark Landis is clearly an exceptionally talented artist. Why does he do something original instead of, you know, just yeah. tracing and these things? And I think he does say well I think he does say because, you know, these things need to be recreated and kind of spread out. I mean there's there's greatness involved and also I think he also speaks to there is a safety in it too. Mm, I guess that's true. Yeah, he's not actually putting himself out there. Yeah, his exactly. own original work, because mm-hmm. that could actually be rejected. Yeah, <laughs> and again, he obviously wants to be accepted. Yeah, that the movie does speak to because it uh, what really the, really the impetus for the documentary was a profile in I believe like Business Insider magazine or something, and that was the first expose on Mark Landis and his thirty years of of duping these poor museums. <laughs> okay. Now, important question because this yeah. is always like uh, interesting, or this is always like a qu- mark of quality for me when I'm watching a documentary. How much do the actual documentarians insert themselves into the piece? Uh, very little, if at all. Okay. Basically, off camera questions that aren't mics. That's about it. See, that's my—that's the perfect way you should do it for a documentary. At least for me personally, that's my personal favorite. I hate it when you know the documentarian, like let's say Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock, make it all about themselves. And I love like Errol Morris's work because again, he's completely out of it until you know you hear in the background, "Oh, you gotta be kidding me!" <laughs> <laughs> the use of incendiary bombs. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that ooh, that makes me excited. Yeah. Again, this is all about my personal taste. Okay. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I, not. I'm not coming at this from any objectivity. Blow up. I'm a big dumb dumb. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will. I will admit. You know, again, not the most compelling documentary in the world. But it, maybe you like Blow Up. Maybe you're fascinated by the art world. It is. It is a story kind of like worth exploring at least once. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That said, you compare it, compare it to an Errol Morris documentary, that's probably light years better than this. Again, this is just mm-hmm. the kind of rudimentary, like you said, piano and guitar strings, um, mm-hmm. tone is is pretty much the same throughout. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't delve into all the ideas that it could, but again, still like a respectable job. And that's okay. why, you know, I just wanted to, you know, give it a give <laughs> the it a high shout out praise here. Greg can give a respectable job. <laughs> yeah. I say worthy, worthy of looking at. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> worthy of letting it be absorbed into your eye holes. Yes. Put <laughs> that on the pass through your brain. Maybe, maybe one, or, one or two things will hit a neuron on the way. But <laughs> Take that quote and put it in two little laurels right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> neuron worthy by Greg mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I know our listeners probably have opinions of their own. And maybe they want to disagree, Greg. Maybe they want to congratulate us on being so smart. Yes, but how could they do that? How could they share their thoughts and opinions with us? Well, clearly they can go to their local post office. (laughs) Stamps are only fifty-three cents. As as we said, John lives. John lives at. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you should probably cut that (laughs) out. But, uh, you know, barring that, because, again, stamps are so expensive, how about you reach out to us with electronic mail? That's right. On this newfangled electronic mail, you can reach out to us at AspiringSnobs at gmail.com with your questions and comments and recommendations. What do you want us to watch and shit all over? Please, let us know. (laughs) Not shit all over. John, I think we gave a very measured criticism (laughs) of this movie that bored us and did not entertain us. (laughs) Okay. John, electronic mail is not the only way that people can get in touch with us. Oh how else, Greg? Please do tell. There's also social media. Ooh. Yeah. This That's, this so, is also. That sounds free. complicated. I'm a sixty year old man <laughs> who still has a tube TV and a oh, IBM. Oh, are you kidding? You're you're the ideal audience for Facebook. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Which we are on. You can go ahead. There's a big search bar. It, again, easy. There's a big search bar at the top. Just type in aspiring Snobs. we the only one. How do I get the Facebook on my gateway computer? Nice. <laughs> do I got go to press tab, go tab? the, to the Internet, Internet Explorer <laughs> icon. <laughs> okay. Go to AltaVista. <laughs> search the Facebook. Yeah. at <laughs> Snobs. Mm-hmm. And then you can also follow us on Twitter. Yeah. That's where our president lives. <laughs> And you can see all our sub tweets by Elon Musk.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. We've
0: been called out by Elon Musk, guys. We've gone viral. I mean, indeed we have. It's not the only time I've been accused of being a pedophile, but you know what? <laughs> it wasn't the first time and I'm sure it won't be the last time, no. So yes, go to Twitter, follow us and accuse us of being pedophiles. Yeah. Sure. That's what the if if what else is the internet for, if not that? <laughs> That's what Twitter's for, is just reaching out to thin-skinned celebrities and yeah. getting a response, and then your life feels less empty. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Greg, what are we watching next week? Go! John, we have a thriller that hopefully will actually thrill. <laughs> it's the classic <laughs> film noir starring Orson Welles himself, The Third Man. Ooh. Uh, oh, yes. Speaking of, uh, of twangy uh, guitar music... To prepare for next week's podcast, I'm going to... <laughs> Smoke nothing but cigars and eat nothing but fine cheese. <laughs> I will subsist on bread. I, I'm brain. sorry, are you the brain? Are you Maurice marsh what, is, what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, John. Now that now the the uh, the ur, or not ur, Now the top impression of uh, Orson Welles has to be that champagne commercial at the very very end of his life, uh, It's celebrated for its excellence. <laughs> I'll eat you, Transformers. Wait, what am I here doing? <laughs> oh, poor Mr. Welles. Well, oh. you know what? He lived a good life. Okay. <laughs> Indeed, he did. He lived the best life, I believe. He's responsible for his own choices. No one can feel bad for him. No, I mean I, honestly, people are just jealous. I wish I could just gorge myself and grow to 400 pounds. Also, <laughs> also create one of the greatest movies of all time. Yes, in addition <laughs> to a legendary, a legendary radio performance that we're still referencing 90 years later. <laughs> of course, <laughs> and have a little Shakespeare company. Come on, he lived the best life. Yeah. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. We should all strive to be Orson Welles. Yes. So anyway, we hope you stick around and join us for that. But thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep... I'm just doing Snape. I'm just doing Snape. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Potter. Until next time, keep aspiring. The Pinky and the Brain Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane, an laboratory mice, the teen cat is mice, the dinky, the and the brain, 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 brain.